Uh, our text this morning is 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. And that's in the back of your Bible, right before Revelation. John was an apostle, and he spent uh, three years with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. In fact, instead of calling himself John in his gospel, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is a man who's writing to a community that's been undermined and uh, torn apart by a split and by early heresies and other problems in the church. Uh, And this is God's word for us this morning. Let me read. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, you are our King, and you are our Savior. And we come to you in need. I come to you in need of your Word and your Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would enliven our minds by your Word, that you would renew us by your Spirit, and that this morning you would speak to us. Lord, be present in my words and in my thoughts and be present in the hearing of your word. We know that you will do this work as you've promised to do so. And we commit ourselves to you. In your name, amen. Too good to be true. Uh, That's our experience with moving companies. Uh, We finished seminary in May in St. Louis and packed up our belongings for a few weeks afterwards and then went down to Nashville uh, for a week to help with my wife's, her little sister's wedding. Uh, And then we road tripped out here, so we kind of took the wrong way. Uh, Visited people all along the way, kind of out of our way, going to see people in Alabama and Texas, and stopped through the Grand Canyon, and wanted to make it a fun time for our boys, but what that meant was that we couldn't pack up the U-Haul and just drive straight. Uh, We also didn't want to be stuck in a U-Haul with two little boys for five days. Uh, So that meant we were stuck with moving companies. Um, Let me just tell you, there's there's only a few things in the world that make you more skeptical about humanity than talking to moving company salesmen. Um, $2,000? Oh, easy, easy. We'll do this move for you for $2,000. Not a problem, not a problem. Oh, that guy said $2,000? We'll do it for $1,500. You know, if if I would have believed them, they would have told me uh, they could do it for a dollar. We found a moving company that seemed good. They gave us a good quote, seemed reasonable. Salesmen seemed legit. And then we started reading online reviews, started reading the fine print, and we realized these people can promise you anything they want uh, because they're not actually bound to anything. They can give you an estimate because it's it's not binding. They can hire out anyone they want, and whatever the cost is, that's what it is. Tough luck for you. 
They promised uh, relief from back pain, <laughs> relief for all my friends in St. Louis and for all of you here, free from unpacking. Uh, they promised to take care of us, but all of their promises were empty, and they meant nothing because the promises cost them nothing. Promises cost them nothing. It was too good to be true. What I want to address this morning is how we are tempted to view God, our God, the God who speaks in the scriptures, as a cheap and slimy salesman. We are tempted uh, because when we hear his promises, we think these promises have got to be too good to be true. We've spent enough time with humanity. We've been betrayed, deeply shamed, uh, deeply hurt. Uh, So now we begin to suspect the Lord himself, that he's not as good as he says he is. Uh, We suspect that the reason why we continue to struggle or why there's hardship at all in this life is because he doesn't care after all that he said. We suspect that his promises are empty and that they cost him nothing. We suspect God to be a liar. We suspect our Lord to be a liar. And this is what the community John is writing to. That's what they're struggling with as well. As I mentioned, uh, their confidence in the Lord and in his promises and even their understanding had been undermined entirely. Uh, What had happened was um, there was a group in the church that had split off and had said, uh, your understanding of who the Lord is, church, is wrong. Uh, You have not progressed enough. You've not understood who Christ really is. If you really read John's gospel in this way and you really push it to these extremes, then you'll understand. And it seems like they denied the Lord's cross. It seems like they denied a, a few things. And it's hard exactly to tell, but John is writing to them to say, no, in fact, uh, you have understood. No, in fact, if you read the gospel, you will understand correctly. But what we need to understand is that even in the early church, these people doubted uh, their understanding of of the scriptures, they also doubted God. Uh, they doubted that the Lord was going to be faithful to them like he had promised. John is writing them to show them that this couldn't be farther from the truth. It says in verse 13, I have written these things to you, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. John is writing to you and me this morning to tell us that in fact we do know the Lord and the Lord has spoken and he's spoken truly. So this morning I want to look at three things. What God has promised, what that promise cost him, and what his character is as the one who is promising. What his character is. So first, what he has promised. And you look in verse 11 and 12, we're kind of going to do this backwards. Uh, Verses 11 and 12, this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. God has promised us eternal life in Jesus Christ. Uh, This is his main point. This is what John is about. This is what he's getting at. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this, that if you are not in Jesus, if you do not belong to him, if you have not clung to him in faith, then you do not have the life that John's talking about. I'm not saying you're not alive. Obviously, you're here this morning, and we're thankful for that. But you don't have eternal life. You don't have the life of the Son of God dwelling in you. He says it clearly. There's no way around it. Verse 12. It's helpful here, though, just to pause and ask, well, what does he mean by life? 
Uh, this is a Greek word, zoe. We get zoe, you know, uh, we get zoology from it. Uh, and it's, there's two words for life in Greek. There's zoe and there's bios, where we get biology from. Uh, and bios, you have it twice in John, 1 John. It's used for uh, livelihood, vocation, uh, your goods. So uh, in the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, the father sells all of his bios. He sells all of his livelihood to give to his son who takes his inheritance. Uh, bios, bios, uh, is what the biblical writers would call our vocation. Uh, the problem for us is that we look to our bios, we look to our goods, to our livelihood, to our possessions, to our skills, our wealth, our success. Uh, we look to those things as if it's life itself and not just livelihood. We look to those things to renew us. But that is what John is talking about here. He's talking about Zoe, the life indestructible, the life ever renewing. Literally, in verse 11, uh, eternal life is life of the age. Uh, life of the age sounds strange, but what John is talking about is life of the age to come. It's heavenly life. It's, it's God's life itself that has now entered in, into us, into our time and into the world by his son. Uh, it's heavenly life, it's future life that's offered now. Life that has defeated death offered to us now. And what's strange is that it's kind of like a seed. Um, if you plant a seed, you don't see it grow for quite some time. My son and I planted a maple seed back in St. Louis and we waited and waited and waited. And I had to assure him, no, it's going to grow. You know, One month later, though, we saw a little sprout. And that's the way that eternal life is now. It may be imperceptible, but it's persistent. And it grows to full maturity. It's future life available now. One resource says, uh, this is a word study, it says about this word, John's conception of Zoe, of life as present, is even more radical than the other biblical authors. And this is connected with the fact that he traces this life to the resurrection of Jesus, to the fact that the word of God himself and the eternal Son of God, he is the life and has life in himself, not merely as the power of his life as a living creature, but as the creative power of God. As a living creature, he has a soul and he gives it up to death. But his zoe, his life, is not interrupted by death. The life of God that is on offer here that John wants us to see is the uninterrupted life. It's the life that defeats even death. We're promised it in part here and now, but it is true. It really is here and now. You know, this is kind of hard to swallow for a lot of us uh, to say that we don't have life if we don't have Jesus. Um, to say that apart from God, our lives are miserable and full of death. I remember telling one of my bosses this one time. She was asking me what Christianity is about, and I got really theological on her, um, probably an error. But I said, you know, listen, you know, uh, if you're not in Jesus, your life is going to lead to death. And she said, well, you know, we die. So what are you talking about? But uh, just to make this clear, uh, it might be helpful to think about this life as like oil to an engine. Uh, if you run an engine without oil, we have an oil leak in our van right now. If I kept driving that, over and over, what's eventually going to happen is that it's just going to burn up. It's going to grind down to a halt. Um, 
you can feel that in your bones. You know, gentlemen, you hear the gears grind on your car. There's this deep ache. That is the sense of life without God. It's like living your life without water. You begin to implode. You begin to wilt from the inside. And this, this burden of uh, lifelessness, uh, when we have this, when we don't have the life of God himself, we begin to implode and crumble under the weight of the burdens we face. Uh, The fears that follow us around from day to day, the pressures, uh, and these these things lead us to take, grab, steal, control, manipulate, betray, cut down, murder, and kill even, whether in word or deed, all those around ourselves to protect ourselves because we feel this grinding, this imploding. You know, this is a misery that marks all of our lives. Um, Even for the Christian, you know this sense maybe more than you did uh, when you first became a Christian. You understand the feeling of death in you. And death is, first of all, a power in in the Bible. It's not an event. Uh, And that power is what John is talking about. You know, this is what uh, happens to victims of abuse. Uh, They're taught from an early age, often, sadly, uh, that really no one is trustworthy and they're left to protect themselves, either by further anger and violence and control or uh, by trying to please everyone they come into contact with. But deep, deep down, there is this grinding, uh, this pain, and this power of death that's constantly speaking. That's not only for victims of abuse, it's also for all of us, but maybe to a lesser degree. Uh, and this is what sin does. This is the power of sin. Both sin against us, but also our own guilt for our own sins. This is the power of sin to lead us to death. When we confess our sin, though, we're confessing uh, that we uh, are not only have done a few things wrong, but that apart from God, we are on this downward spiral. And that if we don't have his oil put into our engines, if we don't have his life put into us, we will grind to a halt and burn up. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, but God, and here's John's hope for this morning. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us with, even though we were once dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. You know, this is the promise this morning. If you feel that death, if you feel that grinding in your life, the pressure, the fears, the sin, the guilt, the promise this morning is that though you are dead in your sins and trespasses, Christ will make you alive. Christ himself, the one who defeated death on the cross, will give you his own life. That's the gospel as simple as it gets. That is what we are about. That is who we are as a people. When we confess, when we are baptized, when we take the Lord's Supper, which we're not doing this Sunday, we are saying, Lord, we are dead apart from you. 
We have nothing apart from you. You know, if you're a non-Christian here today, maybe this is your first Sunday uh, in a church in a long time, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, this is what I've been trying to avoid. Um, <laughs> I'll just say this to you, a couple things. Uh, stop and consider what's on offer here today. Uh, take this seriously. Um, I, I talk about the pain of the power of death not to uh, crush you, not to make you feel guilty, but to say that this is, this is the reality of our lives apart from Christ. And I've been there, and all of us have been there. What's on offer to you this morning is the Lord himself, the one who can make you new. But the other thing I'll say to you this morning, if you don't know the Lord, is uh, explore with us. Uh, take us to task. You know, you can't spend any decent amount of time with a Christian without getting a sense, a real powerful sense, that there is actually something new and something different about them. Not just that they like, you know, funny Christian music and that they say gosh instead of other things, but um, there's a tangible sense of profound love and humility that you have when you actually spend time with real Christians. That they actually give themselves willingly to you and to others. Uh, test us. Spend time with us. Be with us. Be in our homes. Let us have you over so you can actually see if it's legit. And you know, Christians uh, here today, I'll have, I have a few things to say. Uh, you may be feeling as you listen, you know, I know this is true in one sense, that the Lord renews us and he builds us up and he's planted this eternal life into us that's going to grow up into this mature maple or oak. Uh, and yet, here I am today and, you know, my kids, you know, pooped on my leg this morning and then he kicked me and then, you know, my wife and I are having these troubles and, all, and I just feel like I'm withering from day to day. Uh, a few things in response to that. Uh, you and I wither when we try to go without the living water. We wither. We don't die, but we wither. We also wither when we don't allow God's light to enter into the deepest arenas of our soul. And I think you know what I mean. There have been times in my life in my Christianity where uh, after long periods of growth, I kind of there's this deadness, and I just wonder why. Like, well, where, Lord, where have you been? But I come to realize after some time that, in fact, there's, there's kind of this other area that I didn't want the Lord to deal with. Uh, I was afraid. Lord, don't shine your light there. I'd rather not. No thanks. And that, in fact, was the cause of my coldness. That, in fact, was the cause of that feeling of death creeping back in. But there's also a difference between hope and joy, the hope and joy we have in Christ, being with him, feeding on him, and then the heartache at the great cost we have in living in this world. And I think that's more of the reality for most of us here this morning. Paul says of the character of his ministry, and I would say of all true ministry from day to day, he says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God belongs to God and not us. We are Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. 
to life in you. The Christian life is one of taking up the cross. One of deeper and deeper sacrifice, deeper and deeper service. And I think some days what we feel uh, when we think about the Lord renewing us, when we feel that weight, that tiredness, even that death, is actually just the cost of our sacrifice. But that's exactly where the Lord promises to meet you. That's exactly where Paul was happy to find himself because he knew the Lord was continually at work in him. If you've ever personally tasted the life Jesus gives or seen it and felt it so powerfully present among God's people, you cannot deny that it's true or that he's the Son of God. And you can't deny that you need this life. Well, that's all fine and good to say that uh, life is in Jesus and that it's true everlasting life. Uh, but that is an empty promise or at best a vague speculation if uh, we don't have some way of seeing that it's true. right? I can talk about it all, all morning and make myself read and uh, we'll all agree that was a good point. Uh, but the question really comes down to this. Uh, can this really be true? Can this really be true? If our first point was that God promises life, the second one is that uh, the promise has cost him. And if you, you can see this in verses 6 through 8. God's promise is not empty because he died to make it true. God's promise is not empty because he died to make it true. He paid dearly and personally for it to be true. Uh, John points us to three witnesses uh, to show us who Jesus is and what he's done to guarantee this promise. Uh, he points us to water, blood, and spirit. Now, uh, just we have to spend a little bit of time on this uh, to kind of talk about what this means. Uh, this is one of those beautiful passages in 1 John, but it's also one of those confusing passages. Uh, water, blood, and spirit. You know, we could take a poll as to what that means, and we'd probably come up with five or six different answers. Uh, and if you read commentators, and even historically in the church, there's about three or four different camps about what each of these refers to. Um, one is uh, that they refer to the sacraments. So the water being baptism, the blood being uh, the Lord's Supper, and the Spirit being, uh, being a member of the church, or something like that. Uh, and that has some good stuff to it, and you see some of that stuff in John, but ultimately there's, uh, in my opinion, too many problems with that. Uh, the second is, you know, maybe this refers to the flow of the blood and the water uh, from Jesus' side at the cross. Jesus is on the cross, and the soldier pierces his side, and not just blood, but blood and water flow out. And John makes a point of that to say that in his gospel. So maybe in John's gospel he says, water and blood, maybe that's what he was referring to here. So this would be saying, because of Jesus' cross, we have this, is, uh, we have this truth, we have this guarantee. Uh, my take, and you can disagree with me, and we'll all still be friends, um, is that uh, the water refers to Jesus' baptism, and the blood refers to Jesus' cross. Uh, again, uh, nothing too novel here. Uh, but Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry. And if you remember, uh, Jesus tells John the Baptist in Matthew, I'm being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And John's saying, no, 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 look, you are righteous. You don't need to be baptized with this baptism. You don't need to repent. That's what the baptism is about. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm being baptized to be identified with the people who are repenting, with the people who have sinned. 
The baptism that Jesus took on is the first guarantee that we have eternal life. And it's the guarantee to me and you that in fact we belong to him. The guarantee is just this, uh, that Jesus wants sinners as his people. He wants people who are dead on their own as his people. But it's also a historical event. You know, if you read every gospel, every single gospel writer testifies to the baptism. Four people. Four gospels all testify to this public event. And hundreds more at the time. The blood is the cross. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, he was betrayed by his disciple Judas and crucified at the hands of the Roman curate Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin. And the significance of the cross, if you've not heard it before, is that uh, Jesus, who was entirely righteous, suffered the death of an enemy of God. So not only does Jesus identify himself with the people who are sinful, with you and me, but he also has suffered for us. He's not just our friend, he's also our Savior. Our blood will do no good anymore because Jesus has already given his. He suffered our death and drank our curse. He drank up our death and snuffed it out. Three days later, he rose from the dead, not simply as a spirit, but as an entire body, scarred up as it was, but glorified in victory over death. And again, John is saying, this is a public event. Jesus has not only paid dearly for this promise to be true, but everyone saw it. Everyone saw it. All four Gospels. And even, if you read some of the literature of the time, uh, Jewish leaders who oppose Jesus talk about his crucifixion. Uh, Jewish historians talk about his crucifixion. This is a publicly attested event that Jesus died on a cross. And we know the significance is that it was for us. The third thing is that the spirit of truth is testifying. And you see this in uh, verse 6. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. You know, when Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, he poured out his spirit on his disciples. If you know what happens at Pentecost, Jesus is, ascends into heaven as the king and he sits down at the throne. And Pentecost is Jesus pouring out his spirit, giving it to his disciples and on all believers, and the Spirit now fills the earth. But Jesus also promises that the Spirit is the one who convicts and enlightens and convinces and comforts. You know, the Spirit is the one uh, that you and I have to deal with. The Spirit is the one that will take the baptism and the death and his resurrection and applies them to us. The Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to see these other two witnesses clearly. So we have this wonderful promise from God, but it's not an empty promise because Jesus has paid for it and he guaranteed it. Um, one of the problems with our moving companies was that uh, they weren't willing to pay for it. They weren't willing to guarantee it. They weren't willing to put their name on it. But God has put his name on us in our baptism and he's put his name on his promise to give us new life. You know, this, the, the next thing really is uh, if Jesus has paid for it, then uh, 
can we trust his promise in the first place? After all, who would promise something, pay for it, and then not give it? After all. Uh, that kind of person, if they promised something and then paid for it and then didn't give it to you, uh, is just ruthless and evil. But uh, what John wants us to see here is that this morning, uh, God's character is not capricious or malicious or deceitful, but that, in fact, he's trustworthy. So the next question for us is, who is God? What is his character, and can we trust him? Can we trust him? God is trustworthy in speaking us today. God is trustworthy in speaking to us today. How is God speaking? Verses 9 and 10. Uh, he's spoken historically. We saw this in verses 6 and 8 already. He spoke through the water of Jesus' baptism. He spoke through the blood of Jesus' cross, and he continues to speak through those by his Spirit. But he also speaks in his Scriptures. Um, if you read through John, you'll see that Jesus talks about uh, many things testifying, both uh, the works he does, John the Baptist, but Jesus also talks about the Scriptures testifying. And in your bulletin, there's a quote from uh, John 5 where Jesus talks about, in the very front, Jesus talks about the Scriptures testifying to him to the eternal life that he has in himself. So we have multiple witnesses of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, uh, so the synoptic gospels and John, and their testimony agrees, even though at times it's from different perspectives. And moreover, these witnesses are not self-congratulatory. I mean, you know how it is, right? You hear someone tell you a story, and all of a sudden they're the hero in every turn. Well, uh, that's not how the gospels are. Uh, the gospel writers embarrass themselves frequently as the fools, uh, and yet they all attest to the same thing. So if God has spoken, and he's spoken publicly and historically, then why is it that oftentimes our cynicism and our skepticism is unending? You know, uh, where we are unrelenting in our uh, questions and our cynicism about Scripture, we are much more gracious in other historical reports, uh, we take lots of things, lots of uh, things and histories on the report of testimony and publicly attested to events. And yet, for some reason, with Scripture, we have a harder time letting it just sit as it is. John's point is that given the wealth of irrefutable testimony, readers are logically, historically, and theologically bound to receive his message as binding as one commentator says. You know, the other thing is that uh, the Spirit actually testifies to us internally. So there's this external aspect. You know, we have these public events, and there's the Scriptures, which we have in front of us. But then, even internally, and we talked about this briefly at the beginning, uh, there is this sense in which uh, God is the hound of heaven, and the Lord speaks to us. He chases us down, and He speaks to us internally that, in fact, uh, He's after us, and He does want us to have His eternal life. Well, if the problem is not that God has not spoken, and the problem is not that he's not spoken vaguely or secretly, he's not appeared to just a few and speak secretly on a mountaintop to some vision that no one else seen but we all have to believe, he appeared publicly and historically, multiple witnesses attesting to him. So if we can take that testimony as reliable, then why is it that we still refuse often uh, to listen to him? 
And this is John's point in verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. If we accept men's testimony in courts as sufficient to convict and sentence to death, will we not accept God's testimony in the death and resurrection of his son? And what I want to say this morning is the problem for us uh, that we have with trusting that God has actually promised eternal life in his son is not with the scriptures, and it's not with the way that God's spoken, it's with God himself. You and I have a problem with God himself. In some ways, we've kind of over-intellectualized the whole issue, right? Uh, well, do I believe in God or not? You know, here's this proposition. But really, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is the person of God himself, his character. What it comes down to at the end of the day is that uh, we think God is just like us. We think that he's a liar. We think that he's going to betray us like others have. We think that he has lied to us. And others are telling us that he will do that. So what I want to start with, and what I want to encourage you all to engage with, is the Lord's character. Who is the Lord? And that, in fact, is the ground of our assurance. That is the ground of our hope in his promises. Let me just read a few of these passages to you. Exodus 34 Six through seven, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. James 1, 16 through 7. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The Lord is light, the Lord is trustworthy. The Lord has given you and I life. And really the reason why we are skeptical, skeptical about God is because for most of us, we just haven't spent the time with him. In prayer, or reading the scriptures, or uh, with his people. Frankly, most of us, uh, when we are in a place of doubting, and I'm not saying that doubting is altogether wrong, but our skepticism is because we have avoided the Lord himself. We have room to doubt the Lord because uh, we haven't been with him. We don't know his character. We haven't spent time with people who really know him, and so we have no idea who God really is. The point this morning is that uh, the Lord is present here today. and He's offering new eternal life But the question for you and I is not whether he's uh, doing that or whether it's actually an offer, but whether we will accept his testimony. It's not any more intellectual than that. Will you accept his testimony? And that applies to you whether you know the Lord for 50 years, whether you've been struggling this last week with the same sin for the 50 years, 
or whether this is the first time you have been inside a church. Will you accept his testimony that he has set his sights on you and he is here to give you indestructible life by clinging to him? Will you reject him? Don't. Soften your heart to him. Listen. Whatever issues you may have with Christians, and there are plenty to have with Christians, by the way, or with the church, uh, those things are important, but ultimately beside the point. The one you have to engage with today is the Lord himself. The Lord who meets with us, who gives himself in worship. Whether or not you will listen to his testimony says what you think of God himself. John's word to us this morning. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Brothers and sisters, if you are in the Lord Jesus, you have eternal, resurrecting, death-defying life. Let's pray. Lord, we lift ourselves up to you and we pray for your Spirit to meet with us. Even naming the things that weigh us down, Lord, often brings them uh, more to mind and makes them heavier. And so we cry out for your grace. We cry out for your presence, for your spirit to lift us up. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be present with us, to speak to us powerfully. I pray, Lord, that you would enlighten all of our eyes as we read through the scriptures and give ourselves to you, Lord. Soften our hearts. Help us to see your character, to see you as trustworthy. Give us listening ears, Lord, by your spirit. Amen.